Hello and welcome to the Perusia Podcast. I'm Shabarash, your host, and I'm very excited about our guest today, author of dozens of books now. And uh, we recently had an interview uh, with him about his book, Hope to Die. This was in uh, 2000 and 2020, um, and we're now at 2021. We're now talking about another book. Uh, it is right and just. It's none other than the Catholic convert, good friend of mine, founder of St. Paul Center, professor at, at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Dr. Scott Hahn. Hello, Dr. Hahn. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's wonderful to be back together again with you, Charvel. You have been busy. Uh, just as we've been uh, getting the Hope to Die book out last last year, uh, it wasn't long after that. You've got another one um, released uh, very quickly, and the timing couldn't have been more providential. I mean, it was really a, a wonderful sense of participation with our Lord and his providential timing for Hope to Die to come out weeks after the pandemic. Um, and then likewise, for this called It Is Right and Just Why the Future of Civilization depends on true religion. That came out just days after a rather unforgettable American presidential election. And so yes. I did sense that, no, this would be good timing for, for Easter, hope to die, and also for the election, it is right and just, but never in my wildest dreams could I imagine a better set of circumstances for both books to address some hard questions and some really deep needs on the part of true Catholic believers who want to follow Christ. Wow. Well, um, I, I agree. It was certainly a, an event uh, looking at the election. We've been praying uh, from over here and, um, you know, I know uh, America is, is, is very divided at the moment um, politically. Uh, in the book, do you can you tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, the purpose of the book and the, what it reminds us of as, as not only Catholics, but as citizens of our, of our respective countries? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I can tell you what it doesn't do. It doesn't dive into the political controversies. It doesn't dive into all of the issues surrounding the American Constitution, the US Constitution, how to interpret all of that. But what I'm doing you know, is really more positive and constructive. I'm looking at how it is. And by the way, I should say, I co-authored this with Brandon McGinley, who's become a dear friend and uh, a real encourager too. So when we did this book, we wanted to approach the Catholic faith and the show not only historically, but also biblically and theologically, why the Catholic religion has this capacity to form civilizations like no other religion, but also to remind people of what most folks have forgotten, that religion is at the heart of what, what historians call civilization. That in fact, what has been happening to people in the West over the last two or three centuries is rather novel. It's an experiment in secularism that would treat religion as something utterly irrelevant to social discourse in the public square. And in fact, if you bring religion out into the open for that kind of discussion, it's not just irrelevant, it becomes downright dangerous. And I think people have basically succumbed to this progressive narrative so much that even if they wanna be devout and faithful Catholics, they still tend to think of religion in general and theirs in particular as something that is personal and private not social and public. And so what Brandon and I do from the very outset in part one, the first five chapters, is we show that religion is actually a matter of justice. And so we introduce the notion of virtues, you know, and when St. Thomas Aquinas treats the virtues, there are literally dozens of them. I mean, honesty, diligence, magnanimity, patience. 
but generally they're grouped under the so-called so four cardinal virtues. And we begin with prudence as the first of the four. This is described as the charioteer of the other three virtues. And so you can see how all of our action, all of our decision-making, all of our contemplation has got to be prudent. We won't get into that because that's ordered to the others, temperance and fortitude, but the highest of the four cardinal virtues is justice, justitia. And not just for Christians, but going all the way back to pre-Christian antiquity, classical authors like Plato and Aristotle, but also the Romans who wrote in Latin, Cicero and Seneca, understand that justice is the chief moral virtue, giving to others what is their due. And we usually approach it from below. You know, we look at justice as transactional, which is what we would call commutative justice. You know, you check out of a grocery store, you pay for what you take, but that's the lowest form. There's a higher form called distributive justice, which is much discussed these days, because it's basically what we mean by social justice, equity, fairness, you know, the commonwealth, and, you know, observing the traffic laws, as well as paying your taxes and providing for those in need. But that's where it usually stops. But in this movement from below, moving from transactional justice to social justice, the ancients understood that there was a higher form of justice because there were certain debts that couldn't be repaid, but you had to do your best. And so beginning with your own parents, this transcendent justice of piety, where you honor your father and mother because you can't give them life and food, clothing and shelter and nurture like they gave you as an infant. And so you honor them, you respect them, you show piety towards them. But even more, there's also what we owe our, our country because they also have provided even more than our parents have in terms of justice and the socio-political realm and all of that for the common good. And so patriotism is the transcendent form of justice where you can't give back to your country, but you'd be willing to fight and possibly die for your country, but stop, full stop. Because even Cicero, who was not a devout man, recognized that the single highest form of justice isn't piety or patriotism, it's religio, religion. It's what we owe God. It's a, what we owe the heavens. And Cicero was a little skeptical because he was surrounded by so much superstition, so much false religion, that he recognized the equally, you know, the equal danger of false religion. But true religion, he identified as what we do when we offer sacrifice. And as Christians, we would agree with all of that, you know, because we offer sacrifice to God alone, not even to the Blessed Virgin Mary, as the Coloridians discovered in the fourth century when they offered the sacrifice, the mass to the Blessed Virgin Mary that was condemned by St. Epiphanius and others. To God and God alone do you offer sacrifice, latria. You give it to a creature, it's idolatria. And so, wait a minute, what does that imply? Well, that religion is not only the highest form of justice, which is the chief moral virtue, but it is what Aquinas calls the vertus virtutum the virtue of virtues. And so if you look out and you see an orchestra with all these master musicians, virtuosos as it were, you know, they can all play their part, but it will sound noisy, cacophonous, unless there is a conductor. There's a certain sense in which from Cicero through Seneca to Augustine and Aquinas to the catechism now, religion is the virtue of virtues. It's the conductor. And so you not only have a master musician in God, but the only one who can integrate who can coordinate and unite my 
life as an individual body and soul, my life with my bride, Kimberly, my life with our kids, my life in the neighborhood, in the city and in the state. And so there really is a sense in which it is right and just is more than just a line lifted from the liturgy. You know, it is our duty and our salvation precisely because it would be wrong not to acknowledge God or give him thanks, as Paul reminds the Romans in chapter one of that book, beginning around verse 20 through 31. It's not a misdemeanor. It's not a venial sin to forget God or not to thank him, you know, is a profound injustice. And so because we look at all of this from below, the low, you know, the low hanging fruit is what we choose to pick. We only think about justice in terms of individual exchange or social justice, when in fact, religion, sacrifice is the highest form of justice. And so it's mortal sin. It is a serious crime. It is wrong and unjust. And the catechism makes it so clear. The duty of, this is in paragraph 2105, the duty of offering God genuine worship becomes it's so interesting because it concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. Quoting Vatican II, by constantly evangelizing people, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, laws, and structures of society, of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. I mean, at one level, we hear that and we're like, wow, them's fighting words, as we would say in the States. But actually, it's just the flip side of the coin of the new covenant that Christ gives to his disciples when he's getting ready to depart and ascend into heaven, what we call the Great Commission comes in the last few verses of Matthew 28. And there we read in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Notice he doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me at the end of time. It is now mine on the basis of my, my role as creator, but even more as the redeemer of the human race. And so he goes on to say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. First, it's worthy to note that he doesn't say make disciples in these nations, but make disciples of all nations. Now, the word in Greek for nation, ethne, you know, doesn't mean the gigantic secular nation states that we see today. I mean, ethne would point to communities. And so what we are to do is not just proclaim the gospel to these communities, but make disciples of all of these nations, these ethne, these, these communities. And the term for discipleship, you know, mathetes, a disciple is a disciplined student who follows a rabbi. In this case, we're following the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Regardless of who's in parliament, who's in the White House, he is the King of Kings. And then so he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because baptism incorporates into the family of God, makes us sons and daughters of the Most High, and this was never plan B. This has always been the principal purpose for God making us in his own image and likeness. And then it concludes by two statements, teaching them to observe whatever they think they'll be able to get a majority to vote in favor of. Oh, wait, no. Teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, 
Well, how are we going to do that? For lo, I am with you to the end of the age. So this is not a political, this is not a political platform that is meant to kind of cause us to employ coercion, to bring about conversions through force and violence. No, this is the recognition that we don't have to establish a theocracy. God the Father already has. And this Christocracy has enthroned Christ as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, whether we get a majority or not. So it isn't about trying to devise a human strategy to bring about conversions of small groups in order to get the actuarial experts to change the statistical like, you know, likelihood of, of getting a majority to vote for this party or that party. No, Christ is the Lord of Lords, and we've got to find ways to live out his lordship, not just individually, but socially, not just privately and domestically, but publicly and politically, and remind people for their own eternity's sake that this is not an optional matter. You know, when Paul was writing to Romans, Nero was the Caesar. And in Romans 13, verse 4, he reminds the Romans that civil authorities from the bottom all the way to the top are God's servants, servants for the good. And the word that Paul employs in the Greek is diakonoi, deacons, they're servants. Whether they know it or not, whether they affirm it or not, they are, and so they'll be judged. And so when Paul comes to preaching for Agrippa, he reminds him, like he reminds all of the other rulers, there will come a day when you will give an account. And so he speaks of justice. He speaks of, you know, immor uh, he speaks of, of immortality as well as what you must do in order to be a faithful servant of God who has entrusted all this to you. Now, at one level, this just seems so unthinkable, so inconceivable, impractical, you know, irritating perhaps. But on the other hand, you know, it isn't up to us. Jesus gave us this great commission. And up until now, we've been kind of parceling it out picking and choosing in some kind of selection, you know, where we think we'll do what we think we can succeed in. But as Mother Teresa reminds us, you know, it's, it's faithfulness, not success. You know, and so yes. Jesus is speaking to Galilean fishermen, tax collectors. Yeah, right. What are the chances, you know, <laughs> against the Roman Empire? Talk about a culture of death. And yet somehow, you know, in two or three or four centuries, they succeeded against all odds in transforming this pagan Roman Empire into Christendom. You know, it wasn't utopian for sure, but it was what historians describe as a profoundly religious civilization of love, flawed and imperfect love, flawed and imperfect justice as well. But in Armenia, even before Constantine got baptized, and likewise in Ethiopia, and Thomas takes the gospel to India, and to this day we have the Thomas Christians there in India, who haven't taken the whole country, but they have established their own communities through the centuries. And, and so as Catholic Americans, you know, we've got to be Catholic first and then Americans, but this country that I love so much where I've been born and raised, the greatest gift I can give as a patriotic American, I would say, is living my faith fully as a Catholic and sharing it freely so that everybody else will discover that the only purpose for which God created us was to make it home to heaven. And the only way to do that is holiness. And I think what we'll discover in this process is that holiness is contagious if it's real. And holiness yes. is never something that is merely private. You know, I want to be a saint, but not my wife. Well, of course I want holiness for myself and for her, but what, not the kids? Well, that would be equally absurd. 
So I want it for my whole family, but not the other families in my neighborhood. I want it for them as well. But the neighborhood is where I draw the line, not the city of Steubenville, hardly. I want it for the town. And just my town? No, all of Ohio, but not the other 49 states. I mean, where do you draw the boundary? You don't. There isn't a single country Jesus doesn't point to and say, you're mine. There isn't a single person on the planet Jesus doesn't purchase, doesn't point to and say, I purchased you. Not a square inch of any of the continents. And so what we've got to do is just be faithful and then let the chips fall where they may. We may succeed, we may fail and suffer, but even the suffering of those who are persecuted are going to end up discovering, you know, that the blood of the martyrs will still prove to be the seed of the church. So going all the way back to that first point, religion is a virtue and not just a command that is arbitrarily imposed upon us and we're going to impose it upon others. Virtue comes from the Latin term vir, which means man, from boys to men, from children to adults, we mature so that virtues are for the soul what muscles are for the body. They make it easier and easier for us to do more and more good for more and more people. And the crowning virtue is justice and the crown jewel is religion. And so it's like, okay, we have a fair bit of things to rethink. And that's what the rest of the book is about. Because I think we also point out in the second part, the next five chapters, that this is not a prescription of what we ought to do so much as it is a description of who human beings are. Homo religiosa, that we are by nature religious beings. We we look for causes. We, we look for the source of, of law. We look for the source of truth. And, you know, ultimately, even Paul Tillich recognized that human beings can't live their lives without identifying their ultimate concern. It might be money, but Jesus warns about trying to worship God and mammon because behind the money, if you're worshiping it, is idolatry. And idolatry is not just these false gods, but real demons. I mean, you might say, well, we can't go there. We can't say that. But you can't read the New Testament and not recognize that practically in every single one of the 27 books. So this is a wake-up call for us as, as Catholics in the West to recognize that we have got to be involved through corporal and spiritual works of mercy with our neighbors, whether they're believers or atheists or anything in between. But we've also got to rem remember that as Catholics, we don't just think in terms of election cycles. We do that as good citizens, but even more, we think in terms of generations, like the church does as a mother. And so we plant the fall crop so that we have food for the winter, but we also have to think about the future. And so we plant forests that will have mature trees that we might not live to see, but our grandkids, and we've got now 20 of them, you know, our great-grandkids are going to have the wood to build their houses, their furniture, and to put firewood, you know, so that they can have warmth in the winter. And so it's short-term, medium, and long-term thinking that we have got to coordinate. And God is the Lord of history and the King of Kings. So he orders us to do it, but it is not only our duty, it is our salvation. And so again, more than just lifting lines from the liturgy, we're going back to the basics and working on the fundamentals. And then just saying, Jesus, you know, you are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Here we are, prove it. In my life, in my family, in my neighborhood, as much as you can make us holy. And then like a pebble that falls into the pond and spreads ripples out, you know, we might see springtime or we might see it from purgatory or from heaven. But I mean, we've got to long to realize 
what the gospel commands. Amen. Wow. That's well. That if that doesn't uh, uh, wake us up, I don't know what will. Uh, thank you very much for that quick uh, overview there. Um, it is a reminder for Catholics that we can't just go away and hide and and, and sort of this idea of separating church and state and and keep our religion private. We we are encouraged to get involved in public life and encouraged to to be involved in politics. So uh, is this not? You know, we may feel a little bit hopeless right now or a loss of hope because. Certainly society as a whole, media, um, even our politics out there does does feel and seem uh, that people have turned away from God. Um, but as Catholics, we, we can't just sort of uh, sit back and complain, can we? We have to get in there, get our hands dirty and be part of the solution. Um, it does look like a, it does look far fetched right now. Um, but but my goodness, uh, we can make a difference if we're in there. Um, and it, like you said, if it's not for this our life, it would be for our children's life and our grandchildren's life. So um, we got to start somewhere, don't we? Yeah. I mean, you use the key word. The H word is hope. I mean, we need hope. You know, I, um, I wrote a book called Hope to Die. Now, when people read this, they might like, well, he's trying to fast forward <laughs> and launch a persecution. But of course, we're not interested in that at all. But we're not really looking at politics the same way the world does. And so when we step back and look at the virtue of hope, which is not merely natural optimism. Uh, it really is a supernatural virtue. It's a theological virtue. And so what is hope in the natural order? Well, it's trying to attain a difficult future good. You know, if it was easy, we wouldn't have to hope for it. If it was in the present, not the future, it would now be ours. We wouldn't be hoping. And it's a good. And so what we recognize is that just as we have hope for natural goods, Above all, we have the supernatural hope to obtain heaven, holiness, to see God in the face. If that's the case, then we've got to step back and say, natural hope faces, you know, hmm, future difficult goods. Yeah. But this is not just difficult. The object of supernatural hope is humanly impossible. I mean, apart from God, we won't be made saints. Perhaps we can make ourselves good citizens, whether the state rewards us or not. But to become saints is the only thing for which we were made. And it's not hard, strictly speaking. It's humanly impossible. And so we've got to lock in our faith along with our hope and charity to recognize that this is what we're made for. And even the hard times that make hope seem so impossible are actually going to make us holy, perhaps more than prosperity and comfort. And so if this is really what we long for, then it makes total sense out of what Jesus says at the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you in due time, you know, in God's own way. But if we tend to seek first these things, and also we want to make it to heaven, we're going to easily lose out not only on heaven, but we're going to lose all these things as well. So just kind of keeping first things first, God is first. And again, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, when he answers the lawyers who ask him, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, love God even more than you love yourself. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18, Jesus quotes that as well. These are the two greatest commandments. On these two, all of the other commandments hang. The rabbis counted 613 commands in the law of Moses. But there's one that surpasses all of them. And that is this law of loving God 
more than everything else, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, but always for the love of God. So you don't just give your neighbor what your neighbor wants, you also give to your neighbor what you recognize that he needs, whether he wants it or not, and that is to open his heart to consider the possibility that God loves you more than you can imagine, more than you love yourself, and he loves your loved ones just as much. And so he wants to lead us to the law of Christ, which will set us free to live out his love in a way that kind of goes beyond our own hopes, because this is the theological virtue of hope that is only infused supernaturally. And, you know, all we're really doing is recapping all of the things that we profess in the creed or in catechesis. And so what we've got to recognize that this is more than just doctrine. This is more than just Catholic talking points. This is more than just, you know, Catholic rhetoric. This is the reality we profess when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. But we didn't elect him. I mean, he is the one who's choosing mm -hmm. us and calling us to reach out to everybody else. And again, let the chips fall where they may, or as Alfred Lord Tennyson would put it, Ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. You know, the charge of the light brigade. We hold the light of the world. We are the light of the world. So charge into the darkness and allow the Lord to bless our efforts or raise our corpses. <laughs> Praise God. That's so good. It's such a good reminder. And 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 uh, I do want to switch gears to the the uh, brand new study. Um, but before, just a final thought on, on this idea of, um, you know, big government now. And, and sometimes people can forget it. Uh, that it's not government we worship, it is God we worship, and the government is there to serve. Um, and so it is a good good timely reminder that this book has come out at a time when even politicians, governments can remember that it's in God we trust. <laughs> um, and then hopefully yes. through that, then we can govern um, justly. Let me attach something to that because you just put your finger on something really important, and that is in a world that is purely secularized, or at least it claims to be driving religion into the, the private sphere, there really is no vacuum, right? Nature pours a vacuum. And so secularism is basically reconfiguring society with secularism as the religion. And what is secularism? Well, it's saying that the here and now is all there is. Money, sex, power, pleasure, and more power. And so what we have to see is what the ancient Israelite prophets said, and that is, this is idolatry, false religion. But it isn't as though there is a kind of vacuum when it comes to divinities. No, the powers that lead societies to embrace this kind of so-called progressive narrative, you know, whether it's neo-Marxist or something else, you know, the, 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 what we call, you know, ideology critique or what we call, you know, critical gender theory, critical race theory. You know, this is deception and it's deep deception. And it doesn't just originate with Karl Marx. It originates with something much more dark and diabolical. And we can't just pretend that, oh, well, no, out there there's religious neutrality in my home and in my heart. That's where religion, you know, can be expressed. And, and so we, we point out in the book what I call spiritual Stockholm syndrome. You know, like those two bank robbers in Sweden who took hostages for five days until they were forced out. And in the trial, the hostages are speaking out in defense of the bank robbers, their captors, because it's easy to internalize the mentality of those who are holding you captive just as a coping mechanism. But there's a time where you've got to make a break or else you succumb to a real form of self-deception. I also playfully point out in the book with uh, Brandon, 
that uh, the most one of the most famous plays in NFL football history is uh, Jim Marshall, one of the greatest defensive ends for the Vikings in all of football. And he picked up more fumbles than anybody else, but one fumble he picked up from Billy Kilmer, the running back for the 49ers, he ran back to the end zone, but not for a touchdown because he ran the wrong way. And when he tossed the ball to celebrate, he gave two points to the opposing team, but not because he was betraying his teammates, but because he ran the wrong way without knowing it. You know, we tend to act on the basis of what we think is true, not only in sports, but in the football field of life. Many Catholic Americans are much more American than they are Catholic. And so they don't really think in terms of the long term, you know, planting a forest, living out the lordship of Jesus Christ with joy and making that more contagious. And so there's nothing about force, violence or coercion in this book. There's just simply fulfilling the Great Commission and relaunching the new evangelization and recognizing that we're not going to make Christ the king. He already is. And we've just got to live that out as faithfully as possible. But yeah, you did mention this other thing. And boy, I tell you, we're excited about it. And I would propose that there is a close linkage between this new Journey Through Scripture series, Parousia, the Bible and the Mass. So here is the workbook. And I know that down there, Parousia Media is going to be launching this as well in your own time and your own way, but partnering with us. You know, what we're doing is basically looking at sacred scripture in the light of the Eucharist and looking at the Eucharist in light of the Old and the New Testament. So the new is concealed in the old and the old, of course, is revealed and fulfilled in the new. So from the Passover to the Eucharist, but it's not just connecting the old and the new, it's connecting scripture and the Eucharistic liturgy and the sacraments and the way we live our everyday life. And recognizing once again, you know, I have another book that uh, it's not easy to get down under, but uh, you know, whenever people tell me, wow, this is a new area, a new direction for you. It is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. I remind them that several years ago, I wrote a book called The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire. It's simply a commentary on one and two chronicles to show that the temple in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and the king of, of Israel, Solomon, built God a temple, not just for private worship, but for all of the nations to come up to Jerusalem to discover the king is not just Solomon, it is the Lord God of Israel who is the king of kings back then. And how do we accomplish God's fatherly purpose? You know, it's like one part politics and 99 parts worship, liturgy, sacraments, giving God thanks and praise always and everywhere, living out our secular life, not in a secularized way, but in a sanctified way. The Lord's, I mean, the Lamb's Supper was also pointing in that direction. I'm thinking of Swear to God and a number of other books that I know you might have read through and realized that, you know, this is not hiding a political agenda. It's really disclosing the social and political consequences of Christians simply living out the gospel in a radical way and Catholic Christians tapping the infinite resources that are available in the sacraments, you know. Uh, We've talked about the First Society, a book I wrote subtitled The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. So we've had a number of these Journey Through Scripture studies, JTS. We've had the Bible and the Church Fathers, the Bible and the Sacraments, the Bible and the Virgin Mary. And so this one is really getting to the heart of it all, Parousia, the Bible and the Mass. And I am so excited. 
you know, in the past I've narrated parts, but in this case, I host the whole program. And uh, I'm basically sitting, you know, on set in a living room sharing the truth as I came to discover it when it was the last thing on earth I ever expected to find, to embrace and to follow, you know. So the Catholic religion, no way, you know. The <laughs> Eucharist, no way. The Blessed Virgin, an infallible Pope, give me a break until I woke up and discovered this is where sacred scripture leads you. Right. We're super excited about this study um, coming out for Lent. As you can see, I mean, I've got logos behind me that says the word parousia or parousia is actually the, the way to pronounce it. In Australia, we just said parousia. It's, a, it's an Aussie thing. <laughs> but parousia. It's the same. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, I was inspired by by your teachings when you when you mentioned what parousia is. And uh, we are certainly in the time of the parousia. Um, it, it really is uh, evident when when, as you said, it was in the Oxford Dictionary, you can actually look it up and you'll see a definition of parousia and uh, uh, it, it does refer to the second coming, but literally you talk about how it means presence in Greek. And then, and so where does the Eucharist come in into this and, and why the link, why the title of this study, parousia? Well, I mean, in the last five years, there was a famous study that was uh, published by the Pew Research Center that found that roughly 70% of Catholics in America believe that the Eucharist is nothing more than a symbol. Roughly 30% believe in the real presence. Well, what does that have to do with parousia? Well, if you go back to the first century and kind of forget the redefinition of the word parousia in Webster's, it wasn't simply the second coming. You know, back in the first century, most Jews could speak and write in Greek. And when they did, they used the Greek word parousia to denote presence a person's presence. So when Paul was writing to the Philippians and he said, as in my presence, so now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in your heart. There in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, the Greek word he uses to remind them that I was with you and my presence, that word is parousia. And so when we speak of Christ's real presence, that is body, blood, soul, and divinity of the risen savior in the blessed sacrament, if we were to translate our profession of faith in the real presence, back into the language of the Jewish Christians and even the Greek Christians of the first and second centuries, that term would be a Eucharistic parousia. And, you know, I, I, I quote in my book, Letter and Spirit, as well as in the Lamb's Supper, David Alney from Notre Dame, but also Yaroslav Pelikan from uh, Yale. Uh, both of them were Protestant scholars doing church history and biblical scholarship. And they point out that uh, you look in all of the ancient documents for any evidence that there was this crisis over a delay in the parousia. You know, this idea that Christ was coming again, only he didn't. And so suddenly the church felt a need to hunker down, institutionalize, sacramentalize. You look in the first, second, and third centuries, and nowhere do you find even a slight trace of literary evidence for what Rudolf Bultmann and others just took for granted. And on Pelican goes so far as to say this, that the Eucharist was not compensation for the delayed parousia. The Eucharist was how the early church celebrated the parousia. Why? Because Christ, the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords is present really and truly. It's hidden. So there's a sense in which he is really present here and now already, but there's also a sense in which it's not yet because it is still veiled. We can't see it the way we will in the end, but at the end of history, with the second coming, when the curtain is pulled back, when the veil is removed, 
we're going to discover something that might be surprising, that Jesus will not have any more glory at the end of time than he has right now in our tabernacles, upon our altars, and yes, even in our, in our stomachs and upon our tongues. And so to recognize the real presence of the Lord of Lords, the risen Savior's body, blood, soul, and divinity, I mean, that takes real presence to the heights of heaven, but that's where it belongs because that's who is present here in our midst. Again, in Eucharistic adoration, in a holy hour, or when we just pay a visit to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, we are coming before the Lord of Lords, and we walk by faith and not by sight. It looks like bread, just like it looked like a baby there in the manger, or it looked like a poor innocent victim hanging on the cross, or a corpse buried in the tomb. God always does more with less, and we have to recognize that by faith, we recognize the glory of God in the humblest forms, precisely to take out sin at its source, which is pride, and intellectual pride in particular. That's what took Lucifer from heaven to hell. That's what takes out a lot of people when they think that I have to really reject the faith in order to embrace reason. No, if our human reason, which is such a gift of, of our nature, bows before the mystery of the supernatural glory of the Lord of Lords hidden in the Blessed Sacrament, we are empowered to reason more reasonably than we could apart from faith, but we're also empowered to reason about the mysteries of faith that we could never have known by reason alone. And so it's like, wow. I mean, no wonder John Paul in his last encyclical urged Catholics everywhere to cultivate what he called Eucharistic amazement, because the Eucharist is amazing. And what's also mm -hmm. amazing is how unamazed so many Catholics are. I mean, they profess their belief in the real presence and their 30%. But I mean, parakeets could say body, blood, soul, and divinity, rock, you know, the way they say Paulie want a cracker. I mean, we've got to profess it to be sure, but we've got to contemplate this in order for this to be the wellspring of the joy of the Lord. And then we'll be able to rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul says, and again, I say rejoice, no matter who won the last election or who wins the next round, you know, this is the only thing that can raise us above all of the dark storm clouds of this period of time where we find ourselves in history. I mean, it seems as though the storm is being sustained so long that we tend to forget that there is a sun above the clouds, that somehow the mud puddles look more real to us than the bright sunlight that is eluding us for now. But we know that in this case, it's the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, and that is who is there, really present. And so the Eucharistic parousia is something that, you know, might seem like an oxymoron. Well, the parousia is the end of time. The Eucharist is here and now. Ah, no, it is not in any way intention. It really is two sides of the coin that we call the new covenant, which is the blessed sacrament. And, and I, I'm saying it so fast, it feels like a fire hydrant right now, but we really parcel, we, we parse it out very patiently over, you know, 10, um, 10 weeks and, and really, it's like 20 minutes each, and it's a very patient and gradual instruction that I think anybody will find really accessible. And I mean any Catholic, but also non-Catholics, Christians, but also just seekers who are trying to find the answers to life. Amen. I'm very excited about the, the way you're going to be releasing the, the Parousia program um, this Lent. So St. Paul uh, Center is actually putting it on for free, that you can have free access to the videos 
uh, throughout Lent if you just sign up to the website. But you also have in your uh, available there a physical copy of the study guide, um, which I understand is also available then for purchase. So can you can you explain? Uh, I guess the the way of uh, people to access this program, um, and yes. and then how do how do they dive in? Okay, so first of all, it is a production of the St. Paul Center. So you've got to go to stpaulcenter.com, but St. Paul Center is stpaulcenter.com forward slash mass. So stpaulcenter.com forward slash mass. On February 17th, which is Ash Wednesday, obviously the beginning of Lent, and I should warn you that it's on this time of the international date line. <laughs> but on February 17th, Ash Wednesday, we're going to be releasing installment by installment each part of Parousia, the Bible and the Mass. Why? To cultivate Eucharistic amazement, to recognize that this was there all along, even before I became a Catholic, even before I believed it. It didn't diminish the reality of Christ's real presence. And when I go and I'm distracted or sleepy and forgetful, he is there sometimes more than I am. And what a healthy reminder that it doesn't depend upon us conjuring up warm, fuzzy feelings or Catholic emotions. It just depends upon us resting in the Lord and recognizing that what we profess is not just true, but real. And so week after week throughout all of Lent, what will end up costing money for the MP3 or the uh, the CD-ROM, the, uh, the CDs, this is going to be available. In the past, we've done it with the Bible and the sacraments, the Bible and the Virgin Mary, and the Bible and the Church Fathers. But precisely because we've entered into such a cultural crisis, but also a spiritual crisis, a crisis of faith in the real presence, this has become sort of the, um, the peak of what we call the Real Presence Project. For the last two or three years, we've been focusing almost all of our energies upon advancing and deepening Eucharistic faith in Catholics, Eucharistic amazement. Once you wake up and realize, okay, I believe it as a child, but I almost think of it more like I did when I was a child than a full-grown and mature adult. And so allowing this to really grow and to mature and ripen, it is going to bear so much fruit, not only in our lives of prayer, but also in our lives as parents and as citizens as well. And so, I mean, you can tell, I, I, I feel like it's almost lava in a volcano ready to burst inside of me because there really is a sense in which Christ still wants to cast a fire upon the earth, like he says in Luke's gospel. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Um, I mean, this is personal for me. I, I, I think if we are living Eucharistic lives, this will radically transform our relationship with God and with society. And so this does flow on um, and, and evangelize the world. And so this important study, you say, it really is going to be our opportunity to dive in, become truly Christ-centered, which is truly Eucharistic. <laughs> um, and living a Christ-centered life is a Eucharistic life. Um, I would, I, I'm, I, I want to know, uh, with this study, um, does once once people watch the series, they can get access to the videos later on. Is it is it sort of like you need a facilitator? You watch a bit of the video, then have discussions. Uh, is that the flow of the study? Uh, where people would watch the video first, then you go through the book, and then ideally in a group setting, would you just break open what you are, are viewing? Yeah, there? I mean, I suppose we could say ideally in a group setting. You know, so on Ash Wednesday evening, Raquel and I, she's a, a co-worker here and a good friend. As before, she did it with the other Journey Through Scripture series. We're going to be doing this with dozens of students here on the campus of Franciscan University. 
you know, with the the uh, the workbook, but also with the the video, and we'll have discussion, and we're probably going to try to do maybe two a night, so that because they're short, you know, less than a half hour, around twenty minutes, we can do that, um, and we'll see how student response is. But in the past, there's always been enthusiasm, and we're more excited about this than anything ever before. Uh, I would also say this though, that if you get this study guide of Parousia, the Bible and the Mass you're going to recognize that I can do this alone, or I can yeah. go back over it again on my own, or I can do this with my, my spouse. I can do this with my kids. I can do this with coworkers before work starts in the morning. There are so many different ways to do this. You know, it'll be available for free throughout Lent. And I think that's a cause for excitement. But after that, it's going to be continually available as well. And after Lent, we're going to still be what we declared ourselves about a year ago. And that is the quarantine Catholic hub whether in quarantine or not, the fact is the St. Paul Center website has become the source for so much scripture mm. study content, but especially scripture and the Eucharist. You know, we all recognize that St. Jerome famously said that ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. But I like the little twist that Pope Benedict added in Verbum Domini on the word of the Lord, where he said, ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is a form of ignorance of scripture. And mm. it's not just something that non-Catholics suffer from, it's something that many Catholics have never completed, that circuitry that brings it all together in the Holy Eucharist. And so, you know, I lay it before you and really wanna invite our brothers and sisters in Christ to take hold of this and really encourage other people to share it with them as well. So I echo that. We're very excited at Perusia uh, here in Sydney, and we're going to be promoting it across all of our, our um, platforms here. Uh, it is unlike any other study. It's got cinematography in it. I'm very impressed with some of the footage. It's not just you in the lounge room, but it's also some some actors, uh, and you've actually done such a great job, the St. Paul Centre and your directors there and, and um, those in the post-production. They've just done a marvellous job in, in in the cinematography of it. So it's, it's, it's quite... Uh, it draws you in. It's quite entertaining as well as a, um, uh, it can be quite emotional too, but it's not just a, a talking head is my point. It's, it's not like any other. Oh, it's, it's, it's so it's much great. more. Yeah. R.D. Delgado has been our producer and director and uh, he's a devout Catholic, but he's also has professional experience in Hollywood. So the script, wow. and the cinematography, the visual, it's just beautiful. And this is fitting because, you know, the sacred beauty of the Holy Mass and the Blessed Sacrament, you know, even if you're alone with our Lord in adoration, the beauty ought to be not only invisibly present, but visualizable too. And so that's why I'm so grateful for our friendship with RD over the years, but especially in our collaboration on this project, we shared in so much excitement on the whole pathway. It's really been fun. Wow. Praise God. Well, I, I want to encourage everyone, go to the St. Paul Center website. We've got the links below um, and register for this Lent. Um, get access to the videos. And those in Australia, New Zealand, if you want to get the physical copy of the study guide, contact us at perusiamedia.com. Um, but everyone else, please go to stpaulcenter.com and you'll see all the information. Just a final thought here, uh, Dr. Han. We are... Um, we're excited about this study, but the importance of, of Catholic studying, um, we are launching uh, the Perusia Academy, the Parousia Academy, and many people have asked us, uh, you know, what the word Perusia means. So this study is going to really answer a lot of that, whereas that's why we're very excited. Um, but the importance of us now diving deeper in, in into study and, and learning our faith 
in a time where the world desperately needs this truth, um, but Catholics need to arm ourselves with why we believe what we believe, who God is, how do we have a relationship, and the Eucharist is just a major uh, part of that, and that's going to help us in our journey. Uh, just, I guess, as we wrap up here, final thoughts of, um, yeah, the importance of Catholics really diving into their faith using this study and then encouragement for anyone wanting to go further in the academy uh, and the importance of studying uh, their faith. We're going to be covering scripture and apologetics, uh, early church history, um, but we're, we're all trying to point people to a love of the Eucharist ultimately. Um, but the importance of all this. Yeah, I mean, a parting thought that I'd like to share has to do with what we were talking about in the beginning and the middle, as well as now in the end, and that is hope. Um, I am not an optimist by nature, but I must admit I am filled with hope. And not because I can just see what the stock market's about to do, or I can see the next election cycle. No, in a certain sense, if God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, then the darkest hour we know is right before the dawn, but the light will shine. We don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly how, but you know, I think in the year of St. Joseph, St. Joseph would remind us that in a certain way, the darkest time of Israelite history was when we were under the boot heel of Herod and Rome. You know, what are the chances? Well, you don't see conservative political parties advancing good, solid Jewish family values back then. You see an empire, and then more locally, this Herodian oppression that was just stifling. And yet, you know, there is God sending the King of Kings, but how? A baby in a manger? And he starts off as a zygote, an embryo, a newborn, you know, in a trough where cattle and sheep are just been feeding. God, I mean, that's bad form. Mm -hmm. And yet he does so much more with less. His strength is made perfect in weakness, not just back then and there, but here and now, every bit as much. And okay, fast forward. He's healing, he's delivering, he's teaching the truth. And, you know, you, you hear the people shouting hallelujah, you know, and, uh, you know, the son of David, and then crucify him, crucify him. You know, crowds were as nutty back then as they are now. Culture was going crazy. And so he's crucified, the most excruciating form of death and torture out there. I mean, excruciating comes from excrucis. And then he's raised from the dead. And so he comes back. But how does he come back? He storms Pontius Pilate's palace? No, he doesn't. He drops in on Caiaphas? No. You know, he spends hours on his first day back from the dead on the road to Emmaus with two guys who don't even recognize him, Clopas and his unnamed companion, getting their hearts on fire, and then finally taking blessing, breaking, and giving them the bread, and their eyes are open to the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. But why does he disappear when they finally get it? Because they have faith in the Eucharist. That's all they needed. And so they walk all the way back and bear witness to the apostles themselves. Jesus appears, again, shares a meal. That's all they needed. But I mean, he seemed to have wasted most of Easter Sunday, his first day back from Sheol, you know, doing what? Two long Bible studies? Seriously, Lord, let's think about dropping in on Pilate or Herod or Caiaphas. You're wasting your first day back from the dead unless he wasn't. And he wasn't. And so connecting the old and the new, showing why Christ must suffer before entering into his glory, because we too have to suffer, and then we're entering into a glory that will make that suffering just like, like look like small potatoes. And so, I mean, this isn't like just a, 
a fiery pep talk in the locker room during halftime. This is a cold, calculated reminder of who we are as Catholics, why we profess our faith, and why that faith is not just true, but real, not just beautiful, but powerful in a way that you know all of the nuclear arsenals in the world today can't match. This isn't spicy, hot religious rhetoric. This is doing the math, adding up what it means to profess sacred mysteries that emanate from God, the Father Almighty. When we get to heaven, we'll look back and say, you know, Charvel and Scott were talking it up. We thought they were overheated. Actually, they fell flat on their face. Those words fell short of what we really see now and forever. So it is right and just to give them thanks and praise. And it is imperative for Catholics to cultivate Eucharistic amazement and then sit back and let the Lord of Lords prove his Lordship. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you so much. Uh, so powerful. Congratulations on uh, on both the Right and Just book and also this Parousia study. Um, we're very excited and may this have a huge impact on our globe, on our church and beyond. Um, may I invite you to close in prayer as we, as we finish up here? It would be my privilege. In the name Thank of the you. Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, Lord of lords, King of the new covenant, you have said to us in your word that if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and seek my face in prayer and turn from their wicked ways that you will, you will hear from heaven. You will heal our land. You will forgive our sins. And dear Father, we have to believe that that's what you want from us more than we want it from you. So hear us, O Lord, for we ask in the powerful and holy name of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus, for the power of the Holy Spirit to come down upon us precisely because we feel so weak. And apart from you, we have no hope, but we have you, the real presence of your beloved son. So in his name, we ask that you would manifest his lordship in our lives in practical, everyday ways. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray, pray for us, for us now, now at the hour of our death. death. Amen. St. Joseph, pray, pray for us. St. Paul, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. God what bless you. What a privilege. God Thank you, you very much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Stay in touch at Perusia Podcast, another Perusia Podcast. Don't forget the Perusia World, a brand new social media platform where we're promoting all of our partners and apostolates, including St. Paul Center. So check it out. Go to our website to know more. The Perusia World Mighty Network, it's all available now as an alternative to what's out there. Thank you again, and God bless you. A blessed Lent to everybody. <laughs>